0: Alan Chewes is a novelist whose latest book is To Catch the Lightning. He's the book critic for NPR's All Things Considered. Thank you for joining me, Alan.
1: Hi, Rick. Good to be here again. Yes, and
0: I have actually done my homework for this week.
1: Uh-huh.
0: We're talking about single-scene short stories. Now, this uh, I'm looking at a collection here edited by Margaret Bishop. It's a wonderful collection with a, a really nice variety of stories. A- and when yeah, I was— yeah reading these stories, I was thinking, you know, this is kind of like almost a collection of novels, because they hit you pretty hard, don't they?
1: Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me tell you how that book evolved. Um, every uh, summer, early summer, before I come to Santa Cruz, I teach a four-and-a-half-week uh, technique course in what I call scene-making. And, uh, you know, we go back to the poetics and analyze the, the narrative rhythm in the scenes of the Oedipus play, as, as Aristotle talks about it, and uh, and I had a you know batch of stories that I had, single scene stories that I had the students read, and uh, Margaret Bishop took the course and uh, she decided she wanted to turn it into a, the, the reading list into a project, which I was very happy about because uh, it was always very annoying to me to have to put those stories together and give them the library at, at George Mason where I teach the course uh, every. Uh, late spring, um, so she uh, put that book together, and uh, an old publisher of mine, Gibbs Smith, brought it out, and so it's a great uh, companion uh, reading for that course.
0: It's a it's a very nice book too. I mean, your Gibbs Smith makes a well, makes a really nice book. It's easy yes, to read. Yeah. It's beautiful to look at, uh, yeah. and it's a chock full of single scene short stories. Yeah, it's wonderful
1: writers in there. Uh, from from uh, you know Updike to Michael Chabon and Stephen Crane and Hemingway, Doris Lessing, Grace Paley, Catherine Ann Porter,
0: Jack London,
1: Joyce, uh, Tobias Wolf, Chekhov. So it, it, it's amazing how many great writers have written these one one or two of these great one scene stories. Um, although the only uh, story that uh, Bishop couldn't get permission to use, and I'm not sure why, was this wonderful story called No One's a Mystery by Elizabeth Talent, um, which is, I, to my mind, one of the great, uh, great short stories of the last uh, 15, 20 years. Uh, one she did get permission with, to use is uh, San Francisco by Amy Hempel, which I would put in that same category. And this is a, a, a story that's about one page long, mm-hmm. um, done as a monologue, and uh, it's, it's a real-time story. That is, a, the story exists in the time that it takes for this uh, woman to speak it. Uh, she's a, a sister, and uh, her mother has just died, and the sister has accused her of, uh, of stealing the mother's watch that she's coveted uh, the sister when the mother dies is uh, is not at the bedside um, she is uh, in therapy and um, there's an earthquake that occurs while the sister's in therapy I mean you get tremendously broad uh, temporal spectrum in the story can I read it to you uh, sure mean, very brief San Francisco by Amy Hempel do you know what I think I think it was the tremors That's what must have done it, the way the floor rolled like bongo boards under our feet. Remember it was you and Daddy and me having lunch? I guess that's not an earthquake, you said. I guess you're shaking the table. That's when it must have happened, a watch on a dresser, a small thing like that. It must have been shaken right off onto the floor. And how would Mady know? the Sister Mady at the doctor's office, all those years on a psychiatrist's couch, and suddenly the couch is moving? Good God, she's on that couch when the big one hits. Mady didn't tell you, but you know what her doctor said when she sprang from the couch and said, my God, was that an earthquake? The doctor said, did it feel like an earthquake to you? I think we're agreed. You have to look on the light side. So that's when I think it must have happened. Not that it matters to me. Mady's the one who wants to know. She thinks she has it coming, being the older daughter. Although, where was the older daughter when it happened? Which daughter was it that found you? When Mady started asking about your watch, I felt I had to say it. I said, with the body barely cold? Mady said, the body is not the person, that the essence is the person, and that the essence leaves the body behind it, along with the body's possessions. For example, it's watch. Time flies, I said, like an arrow. Fruit flies, I said, and Mady said, what? Fruit flies, I said again. Fruit flies like a banana. That's how easy it is to play a joke on Mady. Remember how easy Now Mady thinks I took your watch. She thinks because I got there first, my first thought was to take it. Mady keeps asking, who took Mama's watch? She says, did you take Mama's watch? And, uh, of course, she did take the mother's watch. She's doing her death watch while the sister is away at her shrink. Uh, And uh, it's a wonderful pun on watch and time and observation and perception. And again, all of it takes place would that would that take two minutes to read? so it's a two minute story in real time, which I love and it's uh not just one scene it's really just a one speech story in which you move through uh the stating of the problem and the struggle to to figure out what's going on on the part of the sister she's trying to fathom her relations with her sister. she's also addressing all of this of course to the dead mother and uh, they're trying to figure out what happened to the watch and we end up uh, realizing that yes uh, the sister the speaker has taken the watch it's the death watch that it's... she's uh, that she's taken now that the mother is gone
0: it struck me as I read these stories that in stories like this a lot of what happens is not spoken of in the mm-hmm. story it's it's the mm-hmm. these are stories of, of negation almost mm-hmm
1: Well, you know, I wonder if that's true for all of the pre-Hemingway stories. Certainly the post-Hemingway stories, because Hemingway uh, tries to write a realistic, naturalistic scene. And that means that a lot of things are unspoken, Uh uh, because either the characters don't know them and the narrator doesn't do much exposition, or the characters know what's going on and so don't have to speak about it. So that's where Hemingway talks about, you know, most of the story, three quarters of the of the story being under under water, like the uh, the ice, most of the iceberg. But um, I think this tradition really starts with uh, with Chekhov, who has a you know wonderfully naturalistic slash realistic understanding of human behavior based on all of those. Of his, he observed over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he presents life as it appears to the clinician. And there is just not a lot of exposition that goes on as he observes. Um, and, it, and that's a battle that, uh, you know, writing students fight, I guess, internally. And it's one that, uh, you know, as readers, we, we struggle with. How much, exposition, how much exposition does a good story need? Oh. Um, if you read your check, obviously, it needs very, very little. Um, and you read some of these stories in the Bishop Collection, uh, single-scene stories, you realize that many of these enormously successful and moving stories don't have any exposition whatsoever.
0: Uh, Olympus Hills is a, is a good example. The Ron of that. Carlson story. Yeah, know. it's a, it's a wonderful story, and... Uh, it's again a, a story where most of what happens is unsaid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, and it reminded me uh, uh, quite a bit of, of the ice storm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With uh with its look at, at uh, uh, couples, um, in in a party kind of setting and in, in modern and in, in those settings really strip the people down to. There's not much left to us when we're mm-hmm. in those kind of social situations, is there?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what makes them so realistic. Um, I mean, people just don't say a lot to each other on most occasions, do they? It's all done by gesture and uh, by the omission of important things. Mm-hmm.
0: And hmm uh, And we, we, you read the Amy Hempel story, and she's really um, noted as a, as a minimalist, and, and we, we also get uh, Raymond Carver here doing what he does so well.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> although there's that great new controversy going on about Carver, um, you know, did he really sign off on, you know, in his mind and heart, on the Gordon Lish versions of the of the stories that came out in in uh, magazines that Lish had edited and in the books that Lish edited for Knopf? Um, you know, there's a a, a a Library of America volume of Carver stories that's about about to come out. Mm-hmm. Mr. So-Called Minimalist has published 90 stories. 90 stories. An enormous <laughs> short story output. And this book, this collection of his stories plus some letters and a few essays is almost 1,000 pages long. Um, so... Um, it's
0: hard to uh, reconcile a thousand pages of short stories with minimalism. Yeah, and he's got <laughs> right, and
1: he's and he's got uh, a couple of versions of the very you know the story that became controversial was a small good thing because uh, you know he wrote he sent in his version to Lish and Lish pared it down enormously and it came out was published in that way and then and then Carver published it again in the form that he approved of originally uh, before Lish. In I think it was plowshares and and um, and then you get the original story of uh, the of uh, what we talk about when we talk about love before Lish edited it. It's got another title, and Lish edited it and put it out in a collection of Carver's under that title. Um, so as far as anybody wants to to uh, fight the minimalist fight all over again, um, you know the, this book is going to give them ample occasion when it comes out in September. Uh, but you know that's maybe that's literary criticism. I mean, we're, we're we're talking about making stories and and the pleasure of reading stories. Um, you know, Carver certainly gives us great pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, but he always said, or always said, but you know, he's he's on record as saying, you know, well, don't look so hard at my stories. Go back to the people that I learned from go back to Hemingway and Sherwood Anderson mm-hmm. and to Chekhov. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's the direct line of uh, Carver's realism, it goes all the way back to, uh, to Chekhov. And uh, it, it's fascinating to trace when, when, you, when you realize that that's uh, to whom he feels the most connected
0: and you were mentioning a literary uh, criticism and critics uh we have one who meets an unfortunate end in the Tobias Wolf story and i'm thinking actually that uh literary critics are rapidly taking the place of arab terrorists and russian gangsters as bad well, guys well you
1: know it's it's very we we've got a rather very you know anemic uh literary criticism these days um, you know, in in in, in the uh, rush of abandoning literature as they did when they connected with all these foreign theories, <laughs> like uh, you know the deconstructionists and all that, uh, in their rush to leave that behind, uh, most of these critics then took up uh, cultural criticism. I, I like I think Pound would spell that with two K's, right? <laughs> uh, and 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 they don't really write much about literature, so you know writing about literature is kind of left to the writers, which is okay. I think it's fine. Uh, you know, there's some wonderful writers. Uh, I mean, you know, with Updike gone, uh, I don't know. If there's anybody who can really who writes as voluminously and as well about contemporary fiction as Updike did. No one could equal that. But you know, Updike uh, really. Picked up the baton, hurled up into the air by Edmund Wilson. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, You know Wilson with with the demise of Wilson and and then Alfred Kazin and now Updike. I think you know it's a pretty piss poor situation for uh, American readers who want to put what they read in some kind of um, aesthetic or social context.
0: And. Um, we we have actually an Updike story in here, A and P, which is mm-hmm. a, 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 again a really interesting story of kind of this one is is actually I think a little more about what's going on in the story. It's not as as so much as about what's mm-hmm. not going on in the yeah. story. Yeah. In a very uh, American slice of life. Uh, could you talk about the you know this the the slice of life and the uh, what is it the kitchen window epiphany story? <laughs>
1: Well, um, I mean the the kitchen window epiphany story. That I mean the the window epiphany goes right back to George, The last paragraphs in Joyce's uh, you know masterpiece, The Dead, mm-hmm. that novella. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're thinking of what uh, April at the end of Revolutionary Road, staring out the window, <laughs> or Mrs. Bridge staring out the rear car window, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. How did I get here? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that all goes back to Joyce. But you know, in in A and P, it's it, it, it's a wonderful coming of age story. Um, I mean, that's that's an anthology I'd love to edit. Uh, you know, coming of age stories.
0: Mm. Wow.
1: From Araby through some, you know, something like uh, A&P and uh, the story that's omitted from the bishop because of uh, uh, rights questions, uh, No End a Mystery by Elizabeth Tallent. That's one of the great uh, coming-of-age stories, uh, along with Joyce Oates' uh, where, have you, where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Uh, and, and Updike's story squarely in, in that tradition of the coming-of-age. Uh, short story: uh, That kid who's working at the register in the A and P sees those three girls in their bathing suits come in and uh, challenges his manager as to you know their right to walk around in their bathing suits and leaves that job and he's never the same again. Um, so it, it, it's, a, it's a lovely story. I, my students and I were talking about it. Uh, in that just about everything in there is is what you'd have to say a kind of universal uh, element except the title I mean somebody will have to put a footnote on that I guess mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know a hundred years from now if the story stays around what was an A.M.P. You know, right?
0: <laughs> yeah you know i i hadn't thought about that but that's one of the advantages when these in these stories that are so honed down to a single scene that it really does force the the writer to um cleave to the universal and and, mm-hmm. and it uh which of course makes them i think uh a little more powerful and somewhat mythic
1: i yeah i mean it's also an argument against using brand names uh, <laughs> it's um you know you know, Tolstoy shows us that when we write about things and objects, um, and these could be products or people or you know, clothing, you, you want to show the, the writer wants to show them to the reader almost as if they've never seen anything like it before. Mm-hmm. As if they're seeing it as if for the first time. Um, and, um, so putting a name on something has a momentary, I say to you right mm, which is lucky strike means fine tobacco <laughs> <laughs> So you are showing your youth. Yes,
0: well, <laughs> hardly, but <laughs> my my lack of cigarette smoking experience, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, Tobias Wolf. He's he lives up here in uh, Northern California, and I, I really liked his story. It's very uh, interesting, and this uh, highlights another thing that we I think we'll see more of in future stories of that mm-hmm. of that about this. Um, you talked about uh, Chekhov's clinical eye. We have a, another kind of clinical eye here, too, of a bullet going through somebody's brain. Mm hmm. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah. And, it, and I mean, it's a, you know, at one level it's a gimmick story, but he, you know, he's such a wonderful writer. He uses the gimmick to great advantage and makes it a story about uh, the psychology of one person's seeing the world. I, it, I, it also, for me, has echoes of uh, "Of uh, Good Man Is Hard to Find." Mm. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, with that—that that when the kid shoots grandma at the end, yeah. she—he he blows her head off. And, you know, she's well before he shoots. He, she's saying, "Don't kill me! Don't kill me! I'll, I'll be like a mother to you. I'll be like the mother you never had." Yeah. And he shoots her and turns to his accomplices and says. She'd been a good woman. Somebody held a gun to her head every second of her life.
0: <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a universal truth that is hard to evade. Yeah.
1: So, the, you know, this critic of uh, Toby Wolf's would have been a good man uh, if somebody hadn't shot him. <laughs>
0: if, somebody had, if somebody had been there to shoot him.
1: Or if somebody had been there, but, you yeah. know, yeah, right. <clears throat> so, so uh, this, this collection to me it really represents the heart of the modern short story. Mm-hmm. The one scene that dramatizes uh, what, you know, thousands of years ago Aristotle points out in the Poetics and argues brilliantly is uh, the essential narrative rhythm that runs through all uh, verbal art, whether it's play or, or short stories or novels. You know, you begin with a, with a problem and then you wrestle with the problem trying to solve it and you move towards some new understanding. Um, and this rhythm is there as stark and as plain as can be in most of these one-scene stories.
0: And for, for a collection of stories, too, I think this has, you know, it's a really great dual-purpose thing. Mm-hmm. It's remarkably entertaining as a mm-hmm. reader. But also, if you're interested in writing, this is yes. the writing process kind of laid bare and out mm-hmm. on a table with a scalpel. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's it's easier for a reader to get a grip on how these stories are put together. I think it's really fascinating yeah. in that sense, too. Yeah. That,
1: re, keeping everything to one scene really strips everything down to the bare essentials.
0: I've been speaking with Alan choose His new book is To Catch the Lightning. Thank you for joining me, Alan.
1: My pleasure again, Rick.